This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Jeff Bezos is my daddy, and the best way to support my daddy is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedyright and click the supporter artist button, shop on Amazon like Earlywood, and I get a little kickback. Please feed the daddy. This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Malia Obama. On Comedy Writing, On Comedy Writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast of the business of craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. This is the second and final episode of the Diet Dr. Pepper Files. These are episodes I recorded in January, but we recorded recently because the files were destroyed by Diet Dr. Pepper on my hard drive. So very grateful for my guest, uh, Eric Moneypenny, last week and my guest this week for recording this again. Uh, but it's also another special week. It's the first week of April, and for every episode released in April, I'm doing the same sketch pitch. Uh, I've done this a couple times. Uh, always fun. Always interesting to see how people take it in different directions. Uh, but this week's guest is David Rabinowitz. I met David doing improv at the Pack Theater in Los Angeles. He was coaching the Monday practice show. Uh, incredibly nice dude. Very good improviser. Good guy to have around. Uh, I left uh, L.A., to, to go to New York and uh, pretty much a couple months after I left, I, I learned two things. One, David and I both went to Quinnipiac university at different times. Hell yeah. Go Bobcats. Uh, but two, uh, he was writing a movie for Spike Lee, uh, which I did not know. And that's obviously very cool. Uh, and of course that movie was black Klansman, which he went on to win an Oscar for uh, just last month or two months ago. I guess when you hear this, uh, which is amazing. And the background of that is most of the podcast, as well as experience at the Oscars. This is a fun episode. So here is David Rabinowitz. Uh, David, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I am from New Jersey, East Brunswick, New Jersey, Central New Jersey. Uh, set, so, set, Okay. I don't know. I thought I had some opinion on Central New Jersey. I don't. Oh, wait. Where are you from again? I'm from Dallas, so I'm like not even close. Oh, okay. Yeah, no one would have that. I think the 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 conversation about Central Jersey is whether it exists or not. Oh, really? And yeah, a lot of people in North and South Jersey say that it doesn't. Uh, and, and why? I guess it's kind of like here in Hollywood, people don't say like like East Hollywood's kind of a nebulous, right? Yeah. Although I would say anybody in LA would would contend that East Hollywood does does exist. Sure. But people in South and North Jersey, a lot of them say Central Jersey doesn't exist. Which Interesting. is just that's just wrong. It, How do, what, what do they call that area? They'll if people in the north they'll probably call it um South Jersey. People in the South they call it North Jersey. Nobody, yeah. yeah. But hey, there's a really easy way to solve that and it's just <laughs> it's its own thing. It's central. <laughs> did you like grow it up there? Um yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Um I like New Jersey. Uh, it's it's one of those places like Florida that gets a lot of um, has a, a reputation. It's the butt of a lot of jokes, right? Um, but uh, I try to defend it whenever possible. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people joke, uh, make jokes about it because their um, their uh, exposure to it is from flying to Newark Airport, which is not the nicest right. area. Yeah. Um, and so they don't see the rest of the states; so they just assume that's you know. Mm-hmm. that's jersey well it's also it's kind of like a cyclical thing where it's like once you hear like oh new jersey is the place to do jokes 
about like Florida. Like for instance, there's like a thing on Twitter I saw. Like they're talking about like your birthday plus Florida man. Yeah, is, like, I, a, I saw a that story. I don't know. Is your something right? Right. It becomes it's like a feedback loop. Yeah, because Florida man's like now like a cliche thing. Yeah, I mean with good reason. Isn't it the thing that like because of a certain law about um, Florida publishing or making public like local crime or something like that so it just seems like florida is this crazy place even though like every state probably oh. has their crazy it's something like that i, I didn't know. know that that I, is interesting I, I could be wrong or maybe just florida is a crazy place yeah i don't know i mean it definitely is kind of a crazy place so yeah. it's it's like a it does feel like a very different state than everywhere else it does yeah but what was did you look up your no order? i didn't do it did you i did and it was something <laughs> like <laughs> it was something like Florida man with knife necklace attacks neighbors. Okay. <laughs> like has, has like a necklace made of knives. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, there is stuff going on every day. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, did you, what kind of comedy stuff like, were you into growing up? Um, I was really into, I, I think, I think watching The Simpsons when I was in middle oh, yeah. school changed a lot of stuff. Um. Because before that, I didn't think I had the most sophisticated comedy exposure <laughs> to sophisticated, you know, comedy stuff. Although, like, you know, I watched, like, Looney Tunes when I was growing up. I love Looney Tunes. So, uh, you know, and that's a very specific type of comedy that, um, you know, was fairly old-fashioned but also evergreen. And, like, you could show that stuff to kids probably at any time and they would still laugh. Um, but seeing The Simpsons, for that's kind of where I, like, kind of came of age mm-hmm. comedy wise what what like uh what seasons were like the when you're growing up what were like the, the seasons going on so when i started well I, I it was probably like the year 1999 2000 when i started watching it mm-hmm. which if you ask anybody that's probably when the, the, just after just after like at the decline but so i wasn't really watching the new episodes though i was watching the reruns mm-hmm. and fox every day would do an hour block two episodes and they were all like prime like season three to like season eight Mm -hmm. though so that those were the episodes that i was exposed to uh reruns it's weird now because like i guess most people now don't have um you know cable (laughs) yeah so they don't have reruns reruns are yeah they're kind of an old-fashioned thing and i remember i used to watch like uh there was a year where i watched seinfeld like every day yeah, uh, for like a year, and I was like, I, I was thinking like maybe I watched the most Seinfeld in the world this year, which probably isn't true because there's probably someone else who's watching it at the same time, and uh, I never would have done that if uh, you know I wasn't bored at home watching TBS or something. That's true. These days, I mean, you know, Seinfeld is probably on Hulu like the entire. It is, I think. Yeah. It is. So anyone definitely could, but it's a lot more. Con- it's it's less of a passive thing. Like you have to go physically and seek that out it's still easy but like mm-hmm. instead as opposed to just putting on that channel and just letting it beam whatever it has right in, into you and you know you probably would say like well i want to watch russian doll because that's like what everyone's talking about or something and like, i don't watch seinfeld that no one's no one's like there's no discourse about seinfeld right now exactly yeah it's kind of a bummer you, you discover less yeah i guess that's true at the same time there is that thing of like people kind of going back to their old comfortable favorites that's like, true how many people do you know who have like rewatched Friends or like yeah. The Office like a million times? Yeah, because they they know that they like it, right? I guess, yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> this is just a funny conversation. We're talking about viewing habits of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I, yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
were you like doing any like uh, comedy or like film stuff growing up? Uh, the yeah, to the extent of um, my uh, friends in high school, uh, and I would <clears throat> we would like make videos. Uh, sometimes for school assignments, instead of writing papers, we would like make a, a movie or something. Um, that's when I discovered editing, and editing was like the, that was the biggest thing in in the world. Um, and I kind of uh, just kind of learned about filmmaking and and shooting stuff, and like even like cutting dialogue scenes from doing that. And um, it was really fun. Also, you kind of learn about directing and, and writing through doing all that. And um, I think. I, although I liked comedy, I think my tastes in high school were were like films that were more like quote unquote serious. Mm-hmm. So I was, aim I wasn't necessarily aiming for comedy. But at the same time, when you make videos with your friends, they're just gonna be fun. even if you try. In fact, the more serious you try to make them, the funnier they're going to be. Right. Like one uh, video that I made um, with all uh, my high school friends, but it was for my now writing partner Charlie's class was what we did. So me and Charlie basically made it. Um, it was a, it was a, it was the assign the video was about political cinema. So what we did is we took some classic movies, like political cinema favorites, and we reenacted certain scenes from it. So we did like all the president's men, JFK, a few good men, uh, full metal jacket. And so we had our friends, like for example, full, you know, Full Metal Jacket, yeah, yeah. the scene uh, where Vincent D'Onofrio's character uh, in the bathroom with the gun, you yeah, know, yeah, really yeah. crazy scene. We had our friends reenact that, and we played it completely straight. And watching it now, it's well, I haven't watched it in a while, but I know if I watch it now, it'd be the funniest thing. Right? Would you, did you do from A Few Good Men? You did like the Jack uh, Jack Nicholson scene. Yeah, his yes. Yeah, it's funny. Um, that's that actually seems like a good way to like. Uh, learn uh, film stuff is just by redoing scenes. I mean, I know you probably were doing it differently. We, we were, but you know, we were we were using the scripts, mm-hmm. all the you know. Um, but uh, we probably should have done some rewriting because <laughs> <laughs> just to fit like what we were doing and the fact that it was a self-contained thing. And this was a know? class of, like in high school. This is high school, yeah. And you you do like very serious like yeah. swearing and like it's, yep. it's pretty great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you get like an A? Uh, I think I think Charlie. It was Charlie's assignment. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he got an A. Like because even if it's not the best, it's like different. It's different, and creative. the teacher knows it's creative, and the teacher knows how much work, yeah. how much more work uh, was put into it. Yeah, there's any high schoolers. An easy way to get an A by doing that. Make a video. Make it. Just, don't don't write an essay. Don't write an essay. Yeah, just make sure. And I. <laughs> I feel like it, they probably do that a lot these days because they're just so used to using like cell phones. And uh, cell phones, exactly. Yeah, uh, I do. I miss making stuff with friends, like in high school. That's like the f- most fun times. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. you're not you're not putting like any sort of like weird pressure on it when you make stuff, especially like out here in LA. It feels like oh, wh- but what's like what's what are we going to do this for? Like right. what? How is this going to advance our mm-hmm. career? Right. You know. Uh, and I, well, this is actually a great segue because I was thinking, I was talking to a friend recently about at Quinnipiac, where we both went to college. Yeah. Um, everyone for their thesis uh, shorts were like, "Oh, we're we're gonna do this and we're gonna get into like Sundance and it's gonna mm. make our careers." Yeah. And uh, no one got it. I don't think people got into many festivals at all. 
it's yeah it's not um it's not an ideal because you're kind of setting yourself up for failure right the it, the focus shouldn't be on the, the crazy festival that you get into the focus should be on making something as good as possible with friends that you can learn from and then build on and show enough promise that you're you do the next thing because mm-hmm. making movies is so hard whether it's writing or or, or you know directing or uh, editing it's not the type of thing that you do once or twice and then you got it you have to you have to get the quantity down mm-hmm. before you get the quality so um it it should be about i mean i you know i don't i don't know anything about film school programs but i would assume that the best way to do it is is um a lot uh, make make your students make a lot of stuff mm-hmm. instead of working on this one you know big thing do because you learn so much every time you do it right there's like that the Iron Glass quote that's like uh, like about taste and how like you have high taste and so when you make something at first it's like you're not it's not up to your taste so you want to quit but you just need to keep going because like your taste was going to lead you to like making something good exactly something like that yeah completely and I agree with that I think as long as you realize you you have to be you 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 get into it because you have the good taste so hopefully. But then you have to be able to separate um, your taste of other things, when it, your taste when it comes to other things, and your own. You, you know, you have to separate yourself from your own project and look at it as uh, if it's anything else. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is tough. That's extremely tough. To it's do. really tough. Yeah, um, that's why I thought when I was in high school and making those videos, I also started writing scripts, and um, you know. Uh, you know, I didn't even have a at that point. There wasn't even a readily available screenwriting software, so I used Word. It was like they were horribly, horribly formatted. But um, t- uh, 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 in retrospect, I was probably on the right direction because I wrote my first feature screenplay when I was probably like sixteen, and I had a good time doing it. And I stepped back and read it, and I'm like, this is pretty bad. I knew it was bad, but I wasn't like discouraged about it. I was like, okay, I'll just write another one and maybe it'll be a little bit better. And the next one was a little bit better, but it was still terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while to write something that I didn't think was horrible. Right. And you wrote a, a full length script in Word at 16? Yeah, I was, I was 16 or 17. Yeah. And it was like a 90 page like thing? I think it was like 100 and something pages. Wow. Yeah. That's how'd you, what made you like, I think a lot of people maybe would be interested in that, but then they're like, oh, I got school and I'm not going to do anything. So, yeah, I guess, but it's also, I don't know. It's fun. It's fun. And also, like, I don't know. School was, we got out of school at like what? Like three or three? Four, yeah. yeah. I don't know. There's time to do that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, what drew you to Quinnipiac? What did I? Well, like, what made you get to go to Quinnipiac? Oh, um, I wanted to do something film related. And I applied to Quinnipiac and Emerson mm-hmm. and Ithaca. And Emerson didn't accept me because my GPA wasn't high enough. So, not enough videos. Not enough video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so your loss, Emerson. <laughs> uh, Ithaca accepted me, but they didn't accept me into their like film program. They accept me. They're like, you can do business, whatever. Also, we're not going to give you any money. Meanwhile, Quinnipiac let me do anything, and they gave me a scholarship. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, 
Yeah. That's an easy choice. Yeah. I, I remember not really for whatever reason, maybe I should have, I n- did not stress about <laughs> choosing a college. Me neither. Isn't that interesting? It's a Quinnipiac way. It's yeah. Like, right. It's Quinnipiac, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's chilling good. Out. <laughs> just chilling out. Like, yeah, it was fun. Mm-hmm. I like going there. We, we mentioned Chapman uh, off mic, but I, yeah. as I applied to Chapman. I really wanted to go there for film and I didn't get in. Uh, so then I went to Quinnipiac. <laughs> there you go. And that's how it It's yeah. like the cool, like, yeah. I don't want to say fallback, but like, it's just, that's the place. Yeah. What, uh, what years were you there? Uh, I graduated in 2009. Okay. And I graduated in, uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. So we probably have a lot of, uh, different, but, but similar experiences. I think so. I would think so. Yeah. So I remember, cause uh, I'll say in the intro, but we did, we did already record this podcast once, but that is true. Yeah. <laughs> But I remember you said you started the uh, the Quinnipiac Film Society. I, you know, I didn't personally start it. My uh, my my class, my graduating okay. class. But I was, you know, I was there at like the very first meeting, and yeah. I wrote the first QFS produced film. Oh, um, yeah. So I was I was very involved from the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, but I I didn't have like a leadership position. Right. I was just like, this is really cool because before that, it was just the the TV station, which was fine, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make movies. Yeah, it seems like it was, uh, and kind of today still, is kind of geared more to TV production stuff, which is, you know, fine. And I think people do get, like, jobs quickly because of that uh, in, like, TV, or, like, in production jobs and stuff. Uh, but it's not so much film-based as, yeah. That, that's true. But at the same time, like, um, the TV station was more about, like, live production, it felt like. Oh, okay. While, like, the film society, I mean, it was films, but it was also just, like, single camera production, which could... could be extended to you know a lot mm-hmm. of tv especially mm-hmm. these days yeah uh and what was what dorm did you live in i, I was irma uh irma, freshman year. yeah nice or you a ledges oh great yeah i like i like ledges um this is a fun place yeah i like that it's i like that all these places are still around and then i was uh <laughs> troop sophomore year i was troop sophomore year too right. the fake palm trees did you, oh, did you guys not have that? Yeah, I don't think we had that. Kind of like a natatorium, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, the the yeah, like the common area. Uh, did you? How many people did you have in your in the room? troop? In... Uh, it was six total, I think. Oh wow! See, we had ten. You had ten. We had ten. Yeah, two rooms with three, two rooms with two. Oh my! Yeah, that's insane. That yeah, that is insane. At the same time, the <laughs> the it was it was a great group of people. Yeah, and um, I went to a wedding. Uh, a couple months ago and uh everyone in that 10 person uh troop room w- was at the wedding yeah so that's oh, pretty cool that's nice yeah uh and it was york hill around when you were there they were like building it uh-huh it was starting yeah but it was it, w- it didn't have um housing mm-hmm. i lived on york hill junior and senior oh, very cool. which is cool very it's a cool. cool place uh and Qu- quinnipiac's on the come up it really is. Oh yeah, the hockey team's good. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, but they they've built they have like a new theater that's cool, like a new oh. uh, theater center for uh, drama. I gotta get back there. Somewhere. Yeah, it's on it's on the up and up. Nice. Uh, I don't know if I have any more Quinnipiac stuff. I feel like we did. We, I feel like we recorded the first time. We talked way more about Quinnipiac, yeah, yeah, yeah. which <laughs> I did like. <laughs> that made me a little self conscious. It's like, is anybody who didn't go to QU gonna find this interesting? <laughs> the answer is no. Probably no. not. Probably not. Uh, so after Quinnipiac, uh, what did you do? Did you go straight to LA? No, um, I stayed in the New York, New Jersey area for a little bit. The first job, uh, job job that I ended up getting 
which I was lucky enough to get, was um, at the Wall Street Journal um, video department. Like it was like shooting, editing interviews. They also had like live shows that I was crew on. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, my major at Quinnipiac was called media production, and at the Wall Street Journal, I was a multimedia producer. So it was like actually pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was a practical practical education that led to. Mm-hmm. Uh, me being able to do that job. That's Quinnipiac motto. Yeah. Practical education. Practical education. That leads to doing a job. <laughs> uh, did that sort of like um, kind of news job that I help with your writing at all? That's a good question. Um, I'm sure it did. Because mm-hmm. you, it's you're helping to, especially when you're doing longer pieces, you you are telling a story. It's narrative. It just happens to be a, a true story. Or, you know, you could even consider it a short documentary. Um, um, and also, because it's news, there's a, a pace to it. And so you kind of learn to work at a faster pace uh, under pressure, which I think that just kind of leads you to being not as precious with the work. Just making it, like, make it work. It doesn't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Just good. Right. It's good to have, I mean, like every writer says, like deadlines are so important. Yeah. So you're like on a news deadline like every day, which is probably pretty helpful. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. And and, and, and so the ultimate deadline sometimes is when you're doing the live shows in which the deadline is the director says something and then you have to do it right there right. <laughs> or you miss the cue. Mm-hmm. Were you were you writing a lot during this time still? I was, yeah, I was writing a decent amount uh just not as much as i should have because I don't know, something about having that full-time job takes it sucks the energy out of you <laughs> yeah. um i also look back at my college days being like i i should have been i had so much time that i never got again i should have been able to write so many more scripts what was i doing <laughs> um i in college i could have taken a screenwriting class and i didn't mm. uh because i very arrogantly thought well i why would i i've already i I know this stuff right um but i probably should have at least taken the advanced one because the result of the advanced one would be you have to write a script i would have written another script Mm -hmm. um so anyway uh they they didn't offer that many screenwriting classes when i was there i think when i was there there was like the intro or like the basic one and then the advanced one yeah i think that might be similar yeah it's still like that yeah yeah did you oh this is what this is what we should be talking about who were your teachers that you had probably the same teachers like liam o'brien liam o'brien nice yeah uh fritz stoudemire he's probably later yeah um i don't know (laughs) all right (laughs) i think i think o'brien uh having talked to some people at qu o'brien is the one professor that i had that is still there yeah He's cool. cool yeah, guy. he's cool. <laughs> he started Shark Tank. Or not Shark Tank, Shark Week. Wait, what? He started, I, he, I may be saying this wrong, but he did something on the first Shark Week. I think he started the first Shark Week. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Something with the first Shark Week. <laughs> anyway, no, okay, no more Quinnipiac information. <laughs> Sorry, we snuck back in there. Um, what made you move out to Los Angeles? Um, I kind of, I've been working in uh, you know at the journal for uh, a few years, and um, I had always wanted to go out to LA. I'd always wanted to take a shot at doing the screenwriting thing. We were you know WSJ. It's mostly it's not mostly it's it's a lot of financial news, but it's also a regular general news uh, organization. And we would report on stuff 
uh, in entertainment and out of Hollywood. And I every time we did some a piece on that, I'm kind of like, well, I don't, I don't want to be the one reporting on it. I want to be the one doing it. Um, also, I had a bunch of f- friends, uh, including my now running partner, Charlie, who had already moved out. Um, so, and then also, I don't know, I was getting a little burned out of the whole news thing. So all those factors combined to be like, hey, if I'm going to do it, I also had some money saved up. Um, it, it, I was 25 and I'm like, hey, if I'm going to do it, I'll do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was easy because I already knew uh, a few people mm-hmm. who, had, who had made the move. And, and what drew you to, uh, to doing improv? Um, I... I, I, I'd never perform well I uh, the last time I had performed was like my fifth grade play uh, and I, I hadn't I was like terrified of performing and then uh, very oddly the day um, that I quit my job at the journal or I, I gave my like four weeks notice um, I met up with a friend later that day to go to dinner uh, in the city she was going to grad school at the time and we were just walking in like the 20s somewhere and um we stopped at an intersection and she's like hey what's that and i looked and it was a comedy theater it was the pit people's improv theater um which i i was vaguely aware of ucb i'd never heard of the pit we looked we walked over and we saw that there were going to be shows that night and we're like hey after dinner why don't we just check this out and so we had dinner and then we went to the show and the show happened to be what I later found out was like some of the best improvisers in the city coming in. And they, it was like three different groups doing uh, like an improvised one act play monoscene essentially. Um, and it just blew, it like blew me away. I'd watched, you know, who's lying growing up. I knew what short form was. I'd never seen long form and it was just so good. Not only was it funny, but it was almost like a really well-coordinated magic trick that, um, and I, I knew I'm like, Oh, there's a method to this. There's, there's something that they practice. And it just fascinated me uh, and kind of scared me. But at the same, uh, it, the, the fascination overrided the anxiety about it. So I'm like, hey, they definitely have this in L.A. When I get there, maybe I should try to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I came to L.A. and um, uh, a few months in, also separately, one of the pieces of, of advice that writers get is to take an acting class. So I'd always wanted to do something like that just to help with my writing. Um, and so... A few months into being in LA, I signed up for uh, the intro class at Second City, Second City Hollywood. I was actually sitting right where we're sitting right now mm-hmm. in my kitchen, uh, and I signed up for it. And immediately, I was like, "What have I done? Like, this isn't <laughs> me. I'm, this, is gonna, this is gonna go so horribly." It is anxious to start. I think even today, like I took an improv class in October in in, in New York. Yeah. And even then, I was like, I'm kind of anxious about just doing improv in a class again. Right? Is it something about it? Where yeah. Where was it? It was at UCB. At UCB. Yeah. Cool. They do uh, they still have classes. They still <laughs> they still have classes. Yeah, for the time being. Uh, uh, <laughs> I feel bad about making that joke. Um, so I took that first class, and it was um just immediate, immediate. Like I know some people that took them a little bit of time to warm up to it. Like immediately, I thought this is the greatest thing. Um, and I just, I just didn't stop from there. I just went through the program and then I went to the pack theater in LA, um, where, where you did stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through the program and I got in a team there and I've been performing improv, uh, pretty much weekly for the last three plus years. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, improv helps your, your writing? 
Yes. I, it, it, it helps in very tangible ways and in intangible ways. Um, intangibly, I don't have any evidence to support this, but when you're going up on stage, when you're improvising, um, you're kind of writing in a way. It, it's exercising the same muscle, but it's removing the part where um, you can go back and, and change things. You just have to make choices and decisions over and over again. So I think that just, I think just that helps work that muscle. Um, also, it's just the, going back to the advice of writers should take an acting class. It, when, you, when you're a performer, uh, it gets you in the mindset of, um, of, of an actor, uh, which helps with writing. More tangibly, um, one of the big jokes about being a writer is that the way that you get jobs, especially as a feature writer, is by uh, pitching. Right. You have to pitch. Uh, and when you're pitching, you're not really a writer, you're a performer. And so a lot of writers hate pitching. They're bad at it because they're not performers. So the solution is become a performer. So me um, being able to go up uh, on uh, an improv stage and um, do well or perform horribly, but the stakes are very low, makes me comfortable in that situation when you're in a room with a producer or an executive where the stakes are higher. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm much more comfortable. Right. How do you go about pitching? Because I, I, I do think like having like an improv background like I do does help, but I still do think it's really because it's kind of like a, a very it's an inorganic situation where you're yeah. just telling this story to this guy. Oh, it, it's even if you kind of like pitching, it's kind of well. I'm not going to speak for everyone. I I don't like it. I I I am decent at it, but I I'd rather not. If I right, it just it, it exactly it feels artificial. Um, the way that we've done it, my running partner and I. Um, and we haven't pitched any TV yet. We've only pitched movies. Um, some pitches that have been successful and, and more pitches that have not been successful. But that's just the batting average of being a writer. Um, well, f- first you have to go through the whole work of, of, of working out the movie. You know? Um, we, you know, we start from a broad strokes perspective, all three acts. You know, we... we, we you know, without getting too specific, because you don't want it to be an hour, um, our pitches usually are anywhere from like fifteen to twenty-five minutes. You want to give them uh, the idea of it—it's it, it, two things. You want to give them the idea of this is the movie. We have it all worked out, but then also in those cases where it's we don't have everything worked out, or there's gaps, or there's things that we you want to that that will be changed you want to sell them on you and the fact that you're confident or skilled enough that it'll 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 be fine um so once we have that stuff worked out we basically split up parts and we go back and forth um i i don't like to write it out verbatim it's more like uh bullet points so i can feel free to you know move around um uh or play around um but then we we practice. He does his part. I do my part. He does his part, and we go back and back and forth, back and forth, um, and we just keep doing that until we get it. And it's um, it's not a f- it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many times do you think you uh, you practice it before you you feel ready? The one that we're writing right now, that's a studio project. Um, I think we practiced it i would say we practiced it fully or in part about maybe 50 times wow yeah. and then we pitched it to 35 different companies 
Did you you actually you actually did thirty five different meetings? Thirty five different meetings, oh, uh, in the course of three weeks. So some of them we were doing yeah four or five um, a day when at, at its height, and it started as a twenty five minute pitch, but by the end we were incorporating feedback and it became a thirty minute pitch. Then after those thirty five companies, a few came back and said they were interested, and so we went out with two companies. Then we did another round with the studios. Wow. So uh, it was it was yeah. So but. Uh, by the time it was over, we must have done it like a hundred times. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a buzz. I think I, one of these mics, usually I try to give it to me, but I think it might be this one. Oh. Uh, the connection's bad. So I think just like just move it slightly. Oh, yeah, it's definitely that one. All right. That's Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Um, how'd, you, how'd you get started with your writing partner? Uh, well, uh, he was a high school friend. You know, we were making those videos back in high school. We... We got into movies kind of at the same time. Like I remember watching Reservoir Dogs for the first time in his, his basement. Oh wow! Um, yeah, uh, we went to college separately, but uh, we, you know we were writing and sending each other stuff. And he he came out to L.A. pretty soon after college, and he did the thing uh, that I didn't have to do, which was he worked in the industry as an assistant. He worked at a talent agency. He worked for a producer. He worked for a director, and he was the one doing the hard work of like making the connections. Right. Um, and then when I moved out, it was like, Hey, we might as well join forces, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we started writing together. Does it help to have like, kind of like an intimate knowledge of each other, like being friends first before starting working together? I think so because you need to be able to have a way of communicating and kind of be, uh, brutally honest, mm-hmm. um, and not let the ego stuff de- derail you too much because the ego stuff is always going to come up. Right. What's your? How do you guys work together? Like, what's your writing process like? Um, when we're when we're well, let's let's say we're we we have a movie to write. Um, we will outline together usually, like in a shared uh, Google Doc. Uh, and we may, we do like really detailed outlines, and we'll discuss it. We'll go back and forth on it, uh, and then once that's set, we'll um, one of us will write acts one and three, and one of us will write act two. We should like flip a coin, like whoever starts, uh, and then we swap, and we rewrite each other, and then we swap again, um, and then so in that process, like our styles kind of blend together. Is that can that be like? Uh... Like if say one person likes one thing more than the other, and then they kind of just like edit it out, and another person puts it back in, you oh, like kind of the petty. That happens all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Um, at first, yeah, first it's kind of a little bit more of a passive aggressive, or it can be a little bit more of a passive aggressive thing. Um, and then at that point, yeah, we, we'll have a conversation about it. And usually, who whoever's more passionate about it will win. But if we still can't come up with it, we'll ideally find a third thing that's better than what any of us individually would have come up with. Mm. Would you recommend people to have a writing partner? It's, it's all about the right situation, right person. Um, uh, yeah, I, it, uh, cause there are definite pros and definite cons. Right. I mean, the pros are, you have that other per you know you know when you're writing something and you're you're kind of debating with yourself is that a good idea mm-hmm. now you have that next person is right. this a good idea am i crazy or not um which is a good thing but also could be a bad thing because when you're by yourself you know you can decide what it's just your taste what you want to work on or what you want to do now it's you both kind of have to feel strongly about something um 
the the a lot of the times work gets done faster you know just as as simple as that like you divide and conquer um also when you're working you know you go to meetings and you 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 have like a weird meeting or or, or you have a you know an interesting situation you have somebody that you can talk to after who's gone through it uh the fact that um we've there's only one other person who's gone through the exact same thing that I have, and it's him. So we have kind of that shorthand of we've been experienced. You know, if you meet another writer who's a professional or, or you know, or aspiring, um, you're going to have a lot in common, but they haven't had your exact journey. Right. We have had the same journey. Um, and then, uh, yeah, this sounds petty, but like when you when you have a writing partner and you're uh, working professionally, you know, you do have to split everything 50-50. <laughs> <It's> true, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say something about running partner. I forget what it was. Uh, all right, whatever. Forget it. You'll, it'll pop up. It'll pop it'll... up. It'll come around. Uh, oh, I was going to say, uh, it must be nice too when you're, when you're pitching to have someone with you, like in the room doing that with you together. Yeah, it's cool. As opposed to, it's just you and I, uh, yeah, I, I've never done a pitch just by myself. I don't know what that's like. Yeah, I can imagine that it sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you can kind of um, develop a rhythm when you're pitching, like kind of help each other out. Yeah. Uh, if someone's faltering or, the, or they, they, they miss something, you kind of build momentum that way. We even, a couple of our pitches that we had done a lot, there would be times where we'd strategically interrupt each other. But oh. it, it was like kind of built in, like it was scripted. But it was like we'd done it in a way that it felt unscripted, you know. Yeah. Uh, which is cool. It, it, it's a momentum builder when you can do that. I'm imagining the Sklar brothers uh, pitching right now. <laughs> That's what you guys do. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like one person. <laughs> How did uh, Black Klansman come about? Uh, so Charlie and I had written one thing together, a pilot, drama pilot, and in. And, you know, that went well enough that <clears throat> we decided to keep working together. Like, we didn't, you know, we didn't kill each other. Mm -hmm. So um, we were kind of open to our next thing. Um, but, you know, we were not professional at that time. We both had day jobs. And this was in July of 2015. Uh, Charlie found, uh, he found, it was actually a news article that um, about Ron Stallworth. And there was a link to Ron's book on Kindle. And Charlie read it, and he showed it to me, and I read it, and we're both like, "Hey, this, this is really interesting. This should be a movie." Uh, the book wasn't in bookstores; it was with a small independent publisher, and uh, we just reached out to the publisher, and through that, we got in contact with Ron, and we essentially just asked Ron for permission to adapt it on spec. Um, we, you know, we 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 told him the major some of the major changes, you know, we were gonna make. Um, and, uh, and he, he was pretty much on board. Um, it was mostly, it, it, it was about him trusting us, us trusting him, but then also we, it was very, um, it, it was, there was an understanding between the three of us that Ron would give notes on everything and approve everything. So we went through this process of, of writing and, and sending Ron everything and him giving us note, like we'd have like three hour phone calls with Ron where he'd like go over every page. And in the middle of this process, um, Charlie from his days as an assistant knew this producer named Sean Reddick and Charlie mentioned what we were working on to Sean one day and Sean brought us in to, to, to pitch it. 
essentially this was our first pitch uh, to uh, Sean and his part, uh, his uh, this guy Ray, who was with this company called QC Entertainment, and we pitched it, and Sean was like, "Wow, that's this is really cool. Uh, I like this a lot." Um, we're in uh, early pre-production on this thing called Get Out with Jordan Peele. Jordan might be interested. This would be an easy conversation to have with him. And we're like, oh, "Okay, wow, wow." You know, I'm a huge fan of Key and Peele and Jordan Peele. Um, but at the time, you know, nobody knew his, his capacity as a filmmaker. Right. And so a couple of months later, we had a Ron-approved draft. We gave it to these uh, producers, and they gave it to Jordan, and Jordan read it, and he became he became a producer on the project and even considered directing it as his follow-up to Get Out. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. That, that would have been a completely different Would have been a different... Yeah, would have been very wow, interesting. That's interesting to think about. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um. And so in September of 2016, uh, up until this point, it, it was kind of, it was, it was crazy. It was really cool, but it wasn't real to me. And then we had a meeting with, in September of 2016, we had a meeting with the producers, and then Jordan walked in the door. And we had an hour-long meeting about our script where Jordan gave us notes, and that was surreal, and that was like, okay, this is actually real now. Mm-hmm. Like, Jordan had literally, three days earlier, won an Emmy for Key and Peele. So it was like, <laughs> wow. Um and his notes were really good. We did a rewrite based on those notes, and then five months later, Get Out came out, and just everything changed. Every, every everything went crazy. Not only did we have Jordan as our producer, but the company QC Entertainment, like which produced Get Out, like ours was their next project. So it's like, what? Right. What? what, what now what? Uh, Jordan, because of the success of Get Out, didn't he wanted to direct his own stuff? So. He, he took the script and gave it to Spike Lee. And, you know, there might have been other people on the list, but it's really, it was just Spike and then everyone else. Spike, who we went, Charlie and I, when we first started writing the script, we joked that Spike Lee was going to direct it. Uh, and then we got a call. Um, it was like summer of 2017 that Spike was meeting with the producers to consider directing it. And then once he signed on, it was just, it just went from there. Yeah. Wow. What what about the book when you when you guys first read it made you think oh yeah this this is a movie? Well, it's it's kind of like what um, what Spike says in interviews. He says uh, six words: black man infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> it's it's a Hollywood high concept. Yeah, yeah. It's a really compelling story, a uh, true story. Um, it just kind of jumped out uh, at us. Uh, everybody's always looking for that cool, um, interesting, uh, true story that people don't know about. And if that true story also happens to be very high concept and just compelling by itself, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much like of the times too. Very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. When you see uh, a book that you want to do, like how do you, how do you pitch the author about doing the book as a movie? Um. We've done this a couple of times, but with Ron, it was our first time, A, but then also it's, so authors are usually very protective of their work, but this was a step further because it wasn't just his book, it was his life. So we we had to handle that um, very carefully. The first thing was we, we, you approach it from a perspective of, especially in Ron's case, of we're not going to do anything that you don't want. You're going to be involved in this process. Um, the second thing was 
we're it, it, it's got to be clear that there's going to be some liberties taken because a straight adaptation of any book is not going to work on right. screen. So we were very upfront. And we knew if Ron wasn't okay with some of these changes, then it wasn't going to work. And the two changes that we said right off the bat were like, well, in the true story, there were threats of a bombing, but nothing actually was carried out. And so to make it more tangible uh, objective for the investigation, we had to make it a re- and, and raise the stakes. We had to make it a real bombing. Um, and we're, we made the uh, partner... Adam Driver's character uh, eventually uh, Jewish, uh, which also raises stakes, but also had a thematic um, uh, role. Um, and Ron was completely on board mm-hmm. with both of them. In fact, he told me recently when he when he came out to LA to do like award stuff, he said, "When you guys told me that you wanted to make the partner Jewish, I knew that that this was going to work out." Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I remember I, I watched the movie uh, like I watched it right before we recorded the first one. Oh, okay. I watched it for a second time, and it did uh, that did strike me as because everyone talks about the race aspect of the movie, but the anti-Semitism stuffs like also there. Yes. And I was wondering if that was uh, source material or it was created, and it's it's very interesting that you created that because it does make uh, thematic sense that he's also got like his skin in the game. Exactly. I mean, um, it was mostly created. Although Ron does talk in the memoir about, you know, it's, you know, this, the fight against racism, it's not just um, any one particular group, you know. Um, But yeah, we introduced that uh, aspect of it. And to credit of uh, Spike and Kevin Wilmot, Spike's writing partner, they, they deepened it. They, they took it even further. So uh, yeah, it was very much created in the, in the writing of the script. Once uh, Spike gets involved, how much work are you guys doing after that? Uh, it was sitting again at this table, um, preparing a final draft file to send off to Spike Lee, mm-hmm. and being you know I've never been so self conscious about a, a computer <laughs> file <laughs> in my life, uh, you know checking the formatting and everything. Uh, but yeah, just ha- handing it off, and and then uh, Spike and Kevin did their pass on it. Mm-hmm. As like a, a white guy writing about like you know. Uh... A, you know a black experience how do you um how do you deal with writing that movie and like being true to the story and also being like not being like you know uh i don't know but yeah just being true to the story it's yeah it's uh two major things one was um having ron there um even if he wasn't like literally in the room he was pretty much in the room when we were writing everything because we were sending him every single thing uh, and getting notes on every page um, and also everything was subject to his approval. And so that was important. Uh, but then the second thing was we knew that it was going to be handed off to a black filmmaker. And we were hopeful that the uh, black director would also do a pass on the script. Um, and so when we heard from the producers, like, yes, not only, uh, Spike wants to do a pass, we're like, great. You know, usually for screenwriters in Hollywood, you're not... Um, you're not uh, enthusiastic about somebody else coming and rewriting. In this case, it was the opposite. <laughs> right. And, and um, uh, yeah, my dumb joke that I say about, uh, I, I give the advice, you know, if you're going to get rewritten, get rewritten by Spike Lee. <laughs> uh, and like I said earlier, this movie is like very relevant uh, today than say it would have been five years ago. Right. How do you think like the events of today like affected the, the movie? 
the way you like wrote it. And when we when we started writing it, or basically when we wrote it, for the most part, you know, Obama was still in office. It was a different, completely different um, world. When we did the rewrite, um, the Trump stuff was happening, but he wasn't elected yet. So we started to go in that direction, but then once Spike and Kevin were actively rewriting it, Trump was in office. So they put in all that stuff, and then Charlottesville happened, you know, when the movie was in pre-production. Um, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, the movie became extremely relevant. Yeah. I was uh, thinking it, w- it would be very funny if when you're writing the script, you're just like, uh, and end the movie with the Charlottesville B-roll, as like, like as like a spec script that you're writing. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, but obviously, that was a Spike, Spike Lee movie, I, I assume. Uh yes yeah. yeah we I mean yeah we weren't even involved with uh with the writing uh once when Charlottesville happened oh right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, our draft ended with the burning cross on the hillside mm-hmm. um so yeah uh and this movie is like you know very serious but also very funny there's like a lot of moments of levity how do you kind of balance that tone and pick where you want to be funny and where you want to be serious uh, I I think um I think. It's about um, not writing jokes. It's more about, you know, the, the premise itself is very absurd. So um, there's going to be humor that arises organically mm-hmm. from that premise and from characters reacting to certain things in this strange story uh, in a grounded, believable way. So um, that, that was our take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ron's memoir, he, he says, you know, don't get me wrong. This is a deadly serious um, investigation, you know, with with real consequences. But there were times when it was very funny, and uh, to ignore the humor of the situation would be it, it would be completely wrong. It wouldn't even it wouldn't be true to life. And also, you know, the the comedy makes it, it makes it more fun, makes it entertaining. And it's a, right. there's a lot of like serious heavy stuff in the movie, so the the comedy helps it go down easier. What was it like when the the movie premiered? In uh, in like wide when it oh or, I guess yeah you went to uh, Cannes Can, right? yeah yeah. That, yeah what was what was that like oh Cannes was crazy well we hadn't we we'd read the shooting script but we hadn't seen it um so the first time we saw it was in Cannes in that huge theater uh Cannes was crazy we we met everybody for the first time at like this were you worried that someone was gonna that they were gonna do the big boo that oh, they yeah. sometimes do oh yeah yeah. <laughs> We hadn't seen anything. We hadn't. We didn't know how this thing was going to turn out. And like the yeah, the reputation of people billing. So like we we knew that we were braced for that possibility. <laughs> and uh, we were in this at this uh, cocktail hour uh, cocktail hour yeah like right before the screening. And we we met people like oh there's Topher Grace, um, and um, we get, we get in these uh, this like motorcade and they take us and then you get to the red carpet and there's all these photographers and it's really crazy and then you're walking up. And um, we're in pictures, not because they took pictures of us, but because we were strategically behind Spike <laughs> in the cast, you know. And we go up this whole red carpet, and we go into this massive theater, and everybody's already sitting down. Like, we were the last ones to go in, and we sit down, and, like, a minute later, the, the, the thing starts. And it was just, it was really insane. And um, people were laughing and, and applauding uh, during the movie. And that... that, that um, that seemed like it was a good sign, and then, you know, that that ending happens, and then it's dead silent, and then the credits came, and people applauded, and then after the credits, the, the lights came on, and then people stood up and applauded, uh, which was really cool. And then, like, 
so like right in, the row right in front of us was spike in the cast and then the row in front of that was like christopher nolan and like benicio del toro uh, or really like the the the, the panel right? the jury yeah, yeah yeah i was like oh my god um and then we went to the after party right after him and in the in the car to the after party we saw that the, the trailer had dropped like while the movie was premiering oh. um and then we started to see the first reviews and they were like they were positive they were mostly positive so it was, it was a really crazy and good experience. And so, like, at that point, are you thinking, like, oh, this movie's going to be, like, uh, a big success? Like, even though that, that must have been, like, what, three or four months before the movie actually came out? That was in May, out. yeah. And so were you, like, thinking, like, oh, this movie's going to be, like, a big deal? No. Yeah. Um, I was thinking this is a really good start, but uh, movies can premiere at Cannes and, and have largely positive reviews but still not really hit mm-hmm. you know right. um so but it was definitely a good sign mm-hmm. you know how nervous were you like opening weekend when it was going wide um i wasn't i don't remember being particularly yeah. nervous you know th- there's the, the the tracking that they they have oh yeah yeah um part of the reason was because it was in it wasn't a limited release but it wasn't a wide release it was like in 1500 theaters um so the expectations weren't going to be insane, insane. Um, we were up against, you know, the Meg, the big shark movie. Oh, and yeah. that was in like 4,000 theaters. Mm-hmm. So um, I was, uh, maybe I was a little bit, I wouldn't say anxious, but I was like cautiously optimistic. Like, mm-hmm. you know what? People like the trailer. People like Spike. People will come out. Right. And then the, obviously the reviews came in, and it was well received. It was well, well received for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, must be great. It was great. Yeah, <laughs> it was really great. I you don't know. Uh, you you really don't know how people are going to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, when the can reviews came in, I read every single one because they they were limited. Like you could right. do that when, and I shouldn't have done that. Um, especially because I like I just focus on the negative ones. When it was what when it was like release released, um, I stopped. I like I read some of them, like some like I, I read like the New York Times one or like Rolling Stone, uh, but then I, I had to stop. Mm-hmm. It's like just, yeah. Can you can you like remember like very negative things that were said, just like imprinted on your brain? <laughs> yeah, I mean like, <laughs> when I think of like reviews of it, yeah, it's like. There were more positive ones than negative ones, but right. the, the negative ones take up as much space, if not more, than the negative ones. Right. That's, than the positive ones. That's just human nature. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's hard not to. Yeah, I would look at any review probably. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's hard not to dwell on that stuff. But um, and when I've heard of people not liking it, my personality is like, um, my personality goes to um, oh, I um, I f- I feel bad. <laughs> I, w- I wish I could have given them the uh, the cinematic experience that they wanted, you know. <laughs> um, and so, obviously, post uh, the movie coming out, you kind of went on a awards circuit. Like later, I guess, like much later, but yeah, yeah, to an extent. But um, the advantage of having Spike is that he takes the burden of that. Um, he's very good at it, and he likes doing it, and so. Um, he was doing most of that. You, you, you see kind of how the sausage is made, uh, awards campaign wise, um, because it's not just the ads, it's, they have all these screenings for industry folk like, or voters. And so they have 
people come out uh, to a screening, um, and then there's a, like a Q and A or a reception afterwards, and uh, and then you, as the writer, you get invited to these things, and you go drink the free alcohol, and then you talk to people one on one. You don't usually do that. We've done a few Q and As, but it was mostly Spike doing that. It was us just being just like hanging out, just like talking to people, mm-hmm. um, which was cool. But then you see how much of a um, uh, political campaigny thing um, the the whole process is mm-hmm. like uh, Leave No Trace was a film that was released uh, by Bleecker Street, which is a pretty small uh, like I guess what you'd call it like a uh, like it's, it's a studio but it's a very small one. They don't really have a lot of budget, I don't think, for awards. If that movie was released by like Focus Features, which Klansman was released by, or like I don't know Fox Searchlight, you would have seen a lot more. Mm. Like that might have had a bet, much better chance of getting awards attention. Right. It is, it is interesting to think about. Like I mean, you know, very famously uh, Harvey Weinstein, although you know less famously now, but he was like the the award show guy, and he would yeah. like get things nominated. And it's so weird to think like. Oh yeah, like uh, Shakespeare in Love won over Saving Private Ryan because of Harvey Weinstein. Like, right? But that's strange, kind of true. What a strange world. But, yeah, and uh, people don't know that. Like, who watch it at home, they're like, "Oh, Shakespeare in Love must be a better movie than Saving Private right, Ryan." Right, right. And it's funny. From what I know, it's like Harvey Weinstein was kind of the one who who made that shift. All okay. of a sudden, it's like you can put money into this stuff and kind of buy your way into better position to to win awards. And once he did that, there's no going back. You know, because all the studios, they want these awards. They want the prestige. And then you have people, literally like people who are, I guess, are kind of freelance free agents who are employed by the studios who are like, they're they're good about running awards campaigns. Um, and it's just part of just part of it. I remember there's like one year where like an actress, she did her own awards campaign or she like paid for her own ad in Variety or something. And that got people upset. Oh, really? It's like, it's just, I guess it's, she's more nakedly doing what everyone's doing. It's the same doing. thing, right? Yeah. Right. Was she doing it to, do a, to make a point or? No, I think she really wanted to get nominated oh, for an okay. Oscar. And I think she, I think she won. I can't remember. Do I don't, you remember who it was? I think it was Jackie Weaver from Animal Kingdom, like in 2009 oh. or 2010 or something. Oh, wow. I think. I may have, I might have just besmirched her name. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, Going to be hearing from her lawyers. <laughs> Oh, I think it's uh, it's making a buzz again. I'm sorry. Again, I usually always make that mine. Uh, yeah, that's good. good. Um, so this is new territory from the last podcast. Yes. Uh, what was it like when you heard you got nominated for an Oscar? Um, it was really crazy. Um, because you, even if people are saying it and people were were telling us like, "Hey, you're gonna, you're probably gonna get nominated," you still don't want to listen to that. Mm-hmm. And so the announcements were made. Uh, very very early LA time, like five thirty a.m. Right, um, which is before I usually wake up. So I was, uh, but of course I did wake up for that, and I was in bed watching on my phone. And um, Camille Nanjiani and uh, Tracy Ellis Ross. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just sitting in that studio, and they're both compl- complaining about how early it is. And I'm like, yeah, I'm 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 with you. And they're doing bits, and it's they're like, doing just bits. please get to <laughs> yeah. best adapted screenplay. Yeah, especially Camille. Yeah, yeah, doing bits about how early it is. But I, I kind of appreciated it. Because I'm like, yes, I'm I'm very tired too. At the same time, like, Ugh, I have so much anxiety right now. And I remember the first because they do it in alphabetical order, and the first one they they announced was um, but the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I didn't expect at all. I was like, wait, what's going on? Uh, and then we were right after, and it was like, oh my god. And then I I got a call from my mom immediately. Um, so yeah, it was really cool. 
and people were reaching out and then it's like and then uh so that was about exactly almost exactly a month before the oscars so that whole month there were like events there was the academy luncheon where um everybody who's nominated is is invited and you one at a time people you you go and walk up on this riser thing and then they take that photo oh right yeah. yeah Um, is that photo is that the everyone nominated or like the new people no it's everyone okay everyone everyone who attends Mm -hmm. Uh, um, yeah Laura Dern is um, she she read every name one at a time oh really she was in charge of wrangling people (laughs) yeah she was but it was like it's very ceremonial it's like one at a time they they announce the name and then everybody claps and then the person walks up (laughs) but there's over 150 people nominated so this took forever uh-huh. and i'm sitting there having you know uh drank like tea and wine for uh for this lunch and i, and I have a small bladder i'm like i have to go to the bathroom but they're doing this in a random order i can't because if laura dern mentions my name and i'm in the bathroom that's not good so i had to tough that out um do you do like uh like say like christian bale does he get like a big applause and then like you know other people get smaller applauses well yeah certain people got bigger applauses but it was more about the the timing of the applause because the she would say the person's name and then what they're nominated for mm-hmm. and if it's a person everybody knows the you know christian bell huge applause if they're saying my name mm-hmm. there there there's no applause because they're just waiting what is he oh, like for? Then... yeah and then there's applause like, I oh, see. okay got it <laughs> <laughs> What, what, uh, is there besides the luncheon? Is there anything else you have to do for the Oscar stuff? You don't have to do anything, but there's like cool. There's some um, so like Universal uh, and Focus. Like they threw like a, a, a party. There was like a, a a dinner for just the writer nominated writers. Uh, that that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, like the agencies throw like little parties. Um, uh, so yeah, there was like little events in, in dispersed. There was um, uh, the, the day after the luncheon, like People Magazine held, had like a dinner, and I got to like sit next to Terrence Blanchard, um, you know, who composed music for Black Klansman and has done for a lot of right, Spike right. Lee movies, but is also like a jazz legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got to sat, sit next to him at dinner, which was really crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 on my. Uh, to my left was like a guy who uh, was nominated for was was nominated for best sound for Roma, and but then also did sound for Buster Scruggs and has worked on every single Coen Brothers movie right. since Blood Simple and like knows them personally and was like showing me like text messages. That <laughs> uh, so it was really cool to just like meet different people from different disciplines um, uh, who, who who have been nominated. What was that uh, writers' dinner like? It was. It's an interesting group of people because it's like what, like Adam McKay. Yeah, so not everybody was there. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. McKay wasn't there actually, uh, but Paul Schrader was there. That was really Whoa. interesting. Yeah, um, that guy's awesome and insane. Yep, 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 <laughs> yep. Yeah, Paul Schrader. Actually, the, the Academy luncheon. There was like a red carpet thing right before it, and we went through at the exact time as Paul Schrader. So we took a, <laughs> there's, we took a picture with him, and you could just see like this guy's. This guy is not happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's Paul Schrader, but then there was also then there were other um, ri- uh, writers um, who were nominated. The Coen Brothers weren't there, but like we've gotten to know uh, Jeff, one of the writers of "Can You Ever Forgive Me," uh, who wrote he wrote Avenue Q. 
Um, oh. Won the Tony for that. Um, so yeah, really interesting, cool guy. But and then there were also like um, uh, veteran writers who were in, in, invited. Oh. So um, um, Larry, um, Larry and Scott Alexander, I think. Oh, those guys, yeah. You, you know, yeah, they wrote. Ed Wood, um, Ed Wood, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Ed Wood, Man on the Moon. Um, they wrote People vs. OJ. They were the main writers of that. So, like people like that, and you get to hear awesome. uh, stories. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, What was the actual Oscar day like for you? Um, Where'd you get your suit? So, um, I there's a tuxedo rental place pretty close uh-huh. to where I live, and. I asked the difference between renting and buying and buying was like twice as expensive. So really, if you use it twice, it's worth it to buy, you know? Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. You know, and this award season, uh, I had four occasions, uh, critics choice awards, uh, the BAFTAs, the writers guild awards and the Oscars. So, so I bought a tux, uh, and it's a very, not a fancy tux it's a very like straightforward like that's a tuxedo yeah. um and i got to use it four times <laughs> it'd be funny if some like asshole just like took pictures like does david or boots only own, own one tux <laughs> <laughs> but see, yeah for guys like it's it's so Nothing, easy yeah. yeah yeah um and uh so i i had that tux and um we uh charlie and i we brought our mothers as our plus ones oh very nice and then we were able to you're actually able to request additional tickets and we actually got our fathers to come and sit in like the mezzanine but there's like one specific number that you have to call at a certain time and request it um but and we're each just requesting one additional ticket they were able to to um to 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 do that for us and so uh both their uh parents were in town and um uh we, we we all traveled in uh, one SUV together, the, the 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 six of us, and um, they so they close off Hollywood Boulevard, but they also close off part of Highland. Oh, and so they take you on a specific route. There's one place to enter, and like no one can enter ex- unless you have like the specific like uh, card or whatever that they that the academy gives you. And so we're going up Highland, and it's completely deserted, and it's crazy. And they stop, and they get you, they take you out, and then you you go in, and you walk the red carpet, and there you know it's all these. And we, we it, the red carpet wasn't insane because we had done this a, a few times before at other award shows and premieres, but it's still crazy. And we're with our mothers, and you're facing all these photographers, and they're calling your name, try, like look here, look here to your right. They're calling, they're telling like David and stuff. Uh, they're, they're just saying look to your uh, left, okay. look to your right, like because they want you to look at their lens, yeah. you know, and everything. And so it's crazy. And then you get um, interviewed uh, by certain, uh, you know, on on camera interviews and stuff yeah. like that. Um, Brian Seacrest asks, so what, uh, what's your name again? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Exactly. We did not get the top level. We got, you know, the, the mid and lower level. Yeah. Mario Lopez. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. Mario. Um, and so, and then you get there and then there's like a kind of a cocktail hour thing and then you you, you eat some things off trays and stuff and you, you drink a little bit, but hopefully not too much. Um, <laughs> and then the, the we, we went in and the ceremony started and we were sitting like right behind like Jordan Peele and Chelsea Peretti. And um, I thought it was, a, I don't know, did you watch it? 
I watched uh, part of it. Part of it. Like, it was a pretty good show. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, like it started with Queen, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was pretty high energy and kind of moved along. It didn't feel as, like, flabby as in previous weeks. And then, but when, when you, what you forget is that it's, you know, it's a live television production. So you kind of see the, the you know, the, the behind the scenes of this telecast that's going out to millions and millions and millions of people. And um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really all that nervous until it got close. And um, so during commercial breaks is when people can go in and out. And during the, uh, there was a commercial break and the woman who works for the Academy came over and just made sure we were all sitting in our seats. So cause she's like, Hey, it's, you uh. know, it's, it's, it's going to happen this, this, uh, segment like after, but before the next commercial. Break. Right. Uh, and then it, the anxiety starts to, to go up. Um, and, uh, I just remember them announcing our category and then reading all the the uh, the um, other uh, nominees. Nominees, thank you. <laughs> and uh, me clapping for the other nominees, you know, because oh, I know them. Mm-hmm. I met everyone in our category except the Coen Brothers, mm-hmm. or I had met like somebody from each category. Right. Like I knew Jeff from Can You Ever Forgive Me. I'd met Will and Bradley Cooper uh, from A Star Is Born. Mm-hmm. Um, and met Barry Jenkins. They're all very nice people. Um, but And then part of it's kind of like a hedge. It's like, hey, if I don't win, like at least somebody that I met who's nice is going to win. Yeah. You know? um, and then they, uh, Samuel Jackson and Brie Larson were the presenters, and Samuel Jackson kind of had an exclamation when he, and then you knew, you just knew, because he wouldn't have that right, for anybody else, yeah. reaction for anybody else. Um, and the first name he said was my writing partner's name, and I just remember standing up and um yeah I, I i think i blacked out a little bit in getting from between standing up and getting to the stage you know um and then uh you know i got up there and it's just a really surreal moment um you get your your statue and then I, and then I, I some some pictures it looks like i have a really intense look on my face it's just because i'm trying to listen to what spike is saying so i can you know react uh, appropriately um I, remember, I do remember at one point while we're up there, I looked at Charlie and he, he just mouths to me, what the fuck is going on? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then it was over. Uh, I did not expect to speak. I did not want really to speak. Um, there's four of us and you kind of, you want Spike to be given his due, but then also I don't want the responsibility of saying something mm-hmm. in front of millions and millions of people. Did you like know going in you weren't going to say anything? Yeah, I, okay. I was... I was like, let, let him, I, all I have to do is stand behind him. It's so easy. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I, there, there also had happened multiple times where there were multiple people and the last person would like go to say something and then the mic would cut off and it's really awkward and just not good. It's just like, let it be clean. Mm-hmm. Let Spike do his thing. Uh, and then we walked off and, uh, and Brie Larson was excited as, as if she had won. Oh. And um, I she gave me some advice. She's like, uh, hey, this isn't going to make sense for a long time, so just try to enjoy it. I'm like, okay, Brie Larson. And then so <laughs> they were taking pictures of all of us, and then they're like, hey, you got to go back to the auditorium because we're in commercial break, but it's almost over, and you can't go in now except during commercial breaks. So we're kind of rushing back, and we miss it. They close the door doors on us, and it's me, Charlie, Ron Stallworth, and Brie Larson that they close the door on. <laughs> and Brie Larson's like, hey, do you want to do a tequila shot? 
I'm like, <laughs> yes, Brie Larson, I do. We do. And so she takes us not to the main bar area where, like, all the regular people are hanging out. She takes us to the backstage bar area where all the Oscar presenters are hanging out, <laughs> a.k.a. celebrities. So we go back, me, Charlie, Ron, and Brie Larson take a tequila shot. And we're in the small room, and it's literally like we are the only non-famous people in this room. It's Brie Larson, and then Francis McDormand, who um, congratulates us, and then uh, Guillermo del Toro, and then Amy Adams, and then Michael Keaton, and Charlize Theron, and (laughs) Sam Rockwell, and uh, Michael B. Jordan. It's just like uh, mind-exploding. And James McAvoy. Um, Last but not least. Yeah, like, of course. (laughs) That guy. Um, Yeah, so it was just a really crazy... Mm -hmm. Uh, experience and it was, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> uh, did you did you like uh, go to any parties that night? Any uh, special Oscar parties? There's the official after party, like the governor's ball, where they like engrave your um, right uh, Oscar, uh, and then after that, um, there's the Vanity Fair party, um, which we didn't have an official invite to, but our statues <laughs> uh, were. Not only they they got us in, but then you you're also able to so we are, we were able to bring our parents to that one, and that oh. was that was a crazy um, party because you walk in and everyone's having an orgy, and everyone exactly it's a Hollywood secret. Yeah, um, you go in and um, sitting on the couch near where you walk in, Elton John is just sitting there. Oh. Um, yeah, it's just it's just really crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was. It was uh, it was fun, and then and then, um, uh, for the next couple of days after, it, I I felt like I had to respond to everybody. I never gotten so many text messages, emails. Facebook I mean, that must kind of suck. Um, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm not gonna say it's. Su- I don't. It kinda, I'm not gonna say <laughs> suck because oh, you know, woe is me. I have to yeah, yeah. Uh, respond to people congratulating me on this thing, but um, it did take up more time than I had anticipated <laughs> yeah. over the next two to three days. <laughs> So post post Oscar, do you feel like you have like um, some sort of, for lack of a better word, like buzz like around your like uh, writing career, like for getting projects off the ground stuff? Yeah, it's a good place to be, definitely. Mm-hmm. And that's really what like the you know going to the Oscars is great and and everything, but really it's about for your career. Yeah, thing. Um, things are a little chaotic these days uh, for writers. Um, the there's the whole thing with the Writers Guild and the the agencies, I'm assuming when this comes out, that they'll, I'm sure we'll have a lot more clarity about what is going to happen. Because right now, as of this recording, we have no idea what's going to happen. Um, we, I don't know. Um, and also, Disney just merged with Fox. Yeah, and there's just one started the other day, right? Less studio, yeah. And so that's throwing everything, a lot of chaos. So um, <clears throat> we're still in a good position. It's just uh, things are kind of chaotic right now. Mm-hmm. What would you like to be doing next? Um, that's a great question. I think eventually, I would down the line. Eventually, I would love to like be like a showrunner. That really appeals to me. But right now, I just want to um, get another movie made. It's not easy as a screenwriter to get a movie made. So that's what we're focusing on. All right. Uh, so we're gonna wrap up. Would you give your thoughts on a sketch idea? It's very funny. We talked at the Oscars for this long. Okay. And now it's time for my sketch idea here. Yes. But, I'm ready for it. Um, so you know, Dirty Jobs. 
the the Mike Rowe show. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen it, but it's, it's just a show where the guy does different, um, weird and often I guess dirty okay, jobs. Cool. So this is a parody of that show, but he doesn't do he doesn't do jobs anymore. He just does disgusting stuff. Mm-hmm. So he'd like go to a farm, and you think so? He's like, oh, he's gonna do something with like a chicken or like lay eggs or something. And instead of doing any animal stuff, he just like rubs shit all over himself. Um, so that's what I have so far. <laughs> so is the is it is it because if he rubs shit on himself, like mm-hmm. is are you framing that as that's a job? Yeah, no. So I think I think maybe the way to do it is like he is um, he. It looks like he's gonna do a job. And he's like, hmm, but maybe I'll just rub some shit on myself. Like, I, I think that he wants to do the dirty okay. stuff more than the job. So it's like more about his character of he just wants yeah. an excuse to do. And then is there like is there a straight man aspect uh, somewhere who's like calling him out? I think maybe like a cameraman like behind the camera would be like, what are you what are you doing, Mike or something like that? Yeah. So he was supposed to do something else, but he's, he's supposed to be doing job. Yeah. So, so okay. Um, he's just gonna check for the dirty part. Yeah. Right. See, that's interesting. So. The the only thing with that is that you probably have to change because if if the show is disgusting jobs, then like everybody's probably then you probably lose the straight man aspect. If it's more of like it's supposed uh, to be a dirty jobs thing, but he doesn't want to, he just wants to do the disgusting thing that it doesn't. Then so that's probably one of two directions. That's a slightly different way to go. Right? Yeah, I think that's the way. Yeah, that's the way I want to go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be funny. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this. Of course, thanks for the second time. All right. Uh, anything you want to plug? Um, I'll uh, I'll 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 plug uh the Pack Theater. Oh yeah, Classic in in Pack. Hollywood. Yeah, go check it out. And you you do improv every Monday. I do improv uh every Monday. Things might be changing because uh, oh, we're yeah. holding auditions uh very soon. But um, yeah, I'd say Pack Theater. All right. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you. <laughs> And a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.